Are we good? According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. As always, we uh, are going to be in Philippians again this evening, Philippians chapter 1, returning where we left off Sunday morning. We also want to take questions and answers tonight. Sorry, I missed last week. Thankful that Lewis was able to step up. Ralph Braun always said, be ready to preach, prior, preach, pray, or die on a moment's notice. And uh, so uh, Lewis fulfilled that by preaching. He didn't pray, didn't die, but that's all right. Philippians chapter 1. It is only right for me to think this way about you all. That's verse 7. Because I have you, I have placed you in my core. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. And uh, so many principles, so many doctrines, so many concepts that come out of that one verse. Uh, we're thick in the middle of it right now, and I think it's going to be a little bit more to try to, uh, to glean what we can from the details there. Before we do get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking God to set aside our distractions, asking for Him to humble us under the authority of His eternal truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before you tonight thankful for your grace and truth, thankful for the blessings that we have to assemble together. Father, calling upon your faithfulness to bless our time of study. We're thankful for the Holy Spirit who is our true teacher. I thank you that uh, he is omnipotent enough to overcome every uh, uh, silly thing that the human being does wrong. Father, uh, I thank you for being so faithful. So bless your children tonight. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, I have my notes. I have a slideshow. I should be good. This morning was horrible without uh, Proverbs notes and with uh, the old slideshow instead of the current slideshow. So, all right, uh, we do want to start with some questions, though. If the microphone's ready to go, we'll give Doug our leadoff question. And uh, in fact, it's right here. Thank you, sir. I listened to the MP3 file and realized Lewis didn't take any questions last week, so I figure you're, uh, you're ready to go. Yes, sir. Yes, uh, 2 Peter 3.10. 2 Peter 3.10. I've heard of that. <laughs> the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Uh, it begins... It begins, Battle of Armageddon, right? The day of the Lord. I, I didn't hear what you said. The day, the day of the, of the Lord, Lord begins when? Okay, the day of the Lord is a term that we've studied uh, in contrast to the day of Christ. Uh, the church is, is uh, looking forward to the day of Christ as a positive thing. Uh, Israel is looking forward to the day of the Lord with dread, with fear and trepidation. And it encompasses the uh, tribulation. It mm -hmm. encompasses the millennium. And it encompasses the destruction of the heavens and the earth by fire. Okay. And so the emphasis here is in Second Peter 3 is on the destruction of the heavens and the earth by fire. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but all of it together it comprises the day of the Lord. And that bugs us because it's, it's a thousand years, right? Well, with the Lord a day it is as a thousand years. So plus seven, you know. It's beyond a thousand So yeah, years. It, is, it, is, uh, it is the day of the Lord. That is the tribulation, the millennium, and the destruction of the heavens and the earth by fire. And then when does that day end? With the heavens and earth destroyed by fire, then... Before the done. great white throne? Right, right. Okay, yep. that was my question. Thank you. Okay, excellent. Outstanding question. That hits right to what we're studying now in, uh, in Hebrews. Jesus Christ is the creator of the Ionos, of the ages. All right, next question. Amos 4, 13. I was reading it, and I referred to the um, Bible Knowledge Commentary. Mm -hmm. And in it, it says, he says, the flash of lightning and reverberation of thunder mark God's ominous tread from one hilltop to another as he approached the northern capital. 
In here, though, it says, He who makes dawn into darkness and treads on the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name. Every other place I've seen the high places, that term, it's referred to the location of the idols. Mm -hmm. And yet he says this is just walking. What is it? I would, uh, unless I have good reason to take otherwise, the high places are centers of idolatry. And uh, they are the the uh, locations where the fallen angels love to exercise their survey over the human realm. And, and uh, yeah, he who makes dawn into darkness and treads on high places of the earth. And the whole book, or the first six chapters, are about eliminating those anyway or destroying mm -hmm. them. Okay, good. That's how I would take it. But I'll, uh, if I think of anything else smarter than that in the coming week, I'll let you know. <laughs> but no, that's... Uh, yeah, my first impression, that's how I would, exactly how I'd take that. All right. Yes, uh, Bill sent me an email. In fact, I put it up here. Um, when it comes to the Alpha Moment, we were, we were discussing the Alpha Moment last week in terms of there's eternity past and then there's eternity future and in between is time, right? The temporal present. And, and time is a sequence of moments. Uh, from the very first moment, what I call the alpha moment, to the very last moment, what I call the omega moment, and every other moment in between is all within the boundaries of time. And as we taught it with the birthing of the humanity of Christ, that being the alpha moment. So the Father says, today I have begotten thee, and that's the very first today ever, because the, beget the begetting of the humanity of Christ is the, the alpha moment. So the question is, do we have a biblical definition of humanity Moreover, do we have a biblical definition of Christ's humanity? I think it'd be the same. Uh, so to start with that, um, yeah, humanity is is not our bodies. Okay, uh, we have bodies, uh, but uh, we have an earthly body, and we're going to have a heavenly body. Uh, but we're not defined by our bodies. Uh, Adam became a living soul. We're told. I like to use Genesis two on that. Um, that uh, he was formed out of the dust, and then God breathed into him the breath of lives, and Adam became a living soul. And so, ultimately speaking, humanity is the, uh, the soul spirit uh, with the cardia at its core. And I drew that diagram last week with a circle for the soul spirit, with a dividing asunder between soul spirit, and with the core being the heart, being the cardia in the, in the center. And, and, and that ultimately, that's, I think that's a biblical definition of, of humanity right there. And so um, regardless of what body we have or what body we're going to have and, and things of that nature. So, uh, and I think that's the same for Christ, it's the same for us. Uh, the fact that we have a soul and a living human spirit uh, you know, means we're believers, uh, but even an unbeliever has a soul spirit. It's just a dead human spirit because it's made alive in Christ. So I think that's a, a useful definition of humanity. Um, it goes on. I was taught years ago that when Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord, he was wrestling with Christ himself. Yes, that's true. That's Yahweh. And the angel of Yahweh are used interchangeably. And so he was wrestling with God. That's why he's given the name of Israel. You have striven with God and have prevailed. So, um, yeah, these are pre, we call them pre-incarnate Christophanies. So he's not yet in the flesh, but God the Son is interacting with the world. And he does so in a burning bush or a pillar of fire or... Um, uh, the angel of the Lord is very common. He would be in an angelic form, uh, in, a, in a spirit body of an angel, uh, as opposed to uh, his humanity. Interestingly enough, after the incarnation, never again is there another uh, Christophany apart from the, uh, the the hypostatic union of the God-Man, the Word made flesh. So, um, and also, we never have another appearance of the angel of the Lord after the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So, that's. Uh, that's a significant study as well. Uh, Genesis 3, God was walking. Again, that's, I believe that's angel of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And uh, yeah, so that's, uh, that's everything you had in your question. Okay, appreciate that. Other questions? Yes, sir. Um, Ruth chapter 4, verse 12. Ruth 4, 12. Um, so they're blessing Ruth, and the blessing goes, may your house be like the house of Perez. Is that the only occurrence in the Bible of that? And also, what does it mean? 
does it have something? That's, that's a marvelous question. I don't know that I have the answer to that. Uh, we have very little on Perez, uh, and other than, uh, you know, we know where he was in the genealogy. We know that it was that the time that the earth was divided, so it coincides with a Babel episode. Um, evidently, there was something significant about that household whom Tamar bore to Judah. Um, I might just simply take it as, remember the Tamar story is a sad story. And, and yet God works cursing into blessing and turns, you know, all things, works all things together for good. Um, perhaps what they're, what they're saying here is, is, you know, Ruth didn't have the best first marriage, okay? And her husband was, if he was saved, he certainly wasn't biblical. Um, but now she has a chance with Boaz for a second marriage. Um, and so maybe that's what they were thinking about uh, with respect to Tamar and uh, yeah, her second husband's her ex-father-in-law, you know, but, but God worked that together and the line of Christ came through that. And, and it's, uh, to me, it's, it's remarkable. All the, the uh, critics that want to attack Christianity and say, well, we're misogynist and we hate women and blah, 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 that's dumb stuff. And they don't see Tamar and Rahab and, and Bathsheba and, and, and in the, the line of Christ in, in this wonderful way, in the way that Christ uh, interacted with, with women in his day, it's an uh, interesting thing to consider. So I'll think about that, and if I come up with a better answer in the coming weeks, same thing I told Ellen, we'll see. Uh, and maybe there's some literature, maybe there's some uh, Jewish uh, Midrash traditions related to the household of, of Perez that I'll find in the coming week and be able to pass that on to also, another question about uh, the principle found in Habakkuk 2.4, where uh-huh. the just shall live by faith. Right. Is that a reference to the doctrine of justification or the doctrine of sanctification or both? I think you can look at it both ways because it's cited both ways in the New Testament. It's very common for a New Testament author to cite that, right? And sometimes they're doing so on a justification basis and sometimes they're doing so on a sanctification basis. And so you end up with a fight between Romans and James, you know? And yet they're both citing Habakkuk to, to justify their statement. And so I, that's how I take it. I take it as applying both ways. The just shall live by faith. And, but the fact that they are just means that they've been justified already, and now they're going to live by faith. So primarily I take that as a sanctification verse, even though Paul uses it for justification illustration. Yeah. Okay. Excellent questions. Well, you guys came armed to the teeth tonight, ready to go. I appreciate that. What else? Anything else? Going once, going twice. Okay, well then let's go to Philippians chapter 1 and pick up where we have been. We're starting with thinking. And we have thinking in verse 7. And it's unfortunate that it's rendered feel. It is only right for me to feel feel this way about you all. No, it's only right for me to think this way about you all. We do have feelings in this verse, but the feelings don't come in until verse 8. And I think um, translators, um, they, 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 they identified that. They see the emotions in verse 8, and so they allowed some of that to creep into verse 7, which is a bit of a, a retroactive uh, way to handle a passage, and it's a bit backwards, and it's not right. Uh, there is a progression, and these things are, are are given in a sequence for a reason. And the thinking is up front in verse seven, that then governs the feelings in uh, in verse eight. And to me, it's a beautiful way that that Paul structured this uh, this whole idea. And uh, and so I want to make sure that we are able to retranslate verse seven in a better way. So uh, he starts off with a for, or a just as, and and that's worth some consideration as well. Just as. It is only just, right, fair, appropriate, proper, dikaios, okay? So just as, in the same way as, it is only righteous or just for me to think this way for you all or about you all. And so his thinking is righteous thinking. That's what we start with, righteous thinking. And that righteous thinking is in the same way, I think, as verse 3, thanking my God and all my remembrance of you. All right? It is right for Paul to give thanks to God every time he remembers the, uh, the uh, Philippian believers. 
He, he remembers them, he makes reference to them, he mentions them in prayer, and in remembering them in prayer, he is constantly, constantly thankful to God on behalf of those, uh, those believers. And that's what's righteous. It would be unrighteous not to thank God. It would be unrighteous not to make mention of them in his prayers. As it says, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. So we, we covered that prayer, we covered the thanksgiving in verses 3 and 4 you know, weeks ago, do you remember? We, we went through that, okay? That it was that, that tandem of, of remembrance and thanksgiving. And, and that's what I think is right, just, appropriate. That's, that's linked here in verse 7 to the, uh, to the statement here. It is only right for me to, to think this way about you all. And we have, I think, the, the context that governs that. So let me jump ahead here to the slide where we left off. And we left off with this slide here. Paul's thinking is righteous thinking, grounded in grace. So his feelings reflect the affection of Christ. And uh, a lot we've got to unpack in that sentence there too. But this is a summary statement of, of the doctrine that's to be contained here in verses 7 and 8. Paul's thinking is righteous thinking. That's what we want our thinking to be. We want to have righteous thinking. And righteous thinking has to be grounded in grace. And we see this also here in verse 7, that you are all fellow fellowshippers of grace with me. You are fellow fellowship partakers of grace with me. And in that uh, fellow fellowship partaking of grace, that's what, what uh, forms the, the basis of uh, righteous thinking. All right? Grounded in grace, so his feelings can reflect the affection of Christ. And uh, in verse 8 we're going to see that there, God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So there's the emotions. He has feelings for them. His feelings for them are feelings of longing, all right? Longing, panting, um, lusting even, you know, like lusting after the pure milk of the Word of God, longing for the pure milk of the Word of God. He was longing for them. And the, the, the longer he was apart from them, the more his heart ached, the more that the longing increases, okay? And so that's definitely, that's an emotional thing. The splanchnon is an emotional thing as it relates to the to the uh, the guts, uh, the kidneys, the the um, the bowels, even okay. To the ancient Greeks, the bowels, and to the Hebrews, the bowels were were uh, the seat of some of the the, the deepest uh, uh, you know emotions at that point. So um, we'll deal with that. The idioms are amusing in some respects, but uh, we accept it for what it is. You know, you don't mock another culture for their idioms because. We should mock ourselves for our idioms. But anyway, we, we need to understand what the idioms are when they're talking about a movement of the, of the bowels, of the, of the liver, of the, of the inner organs. That's a positive thing, okay? It's a good thing. It's spoken of in tenderness. And, uh, and Jesus constantly uses this language, okay? So if we think of some kind of a mamby-pamby, sissy, kind of feminized Christianity, think again, our Savior used this language repeatedly. In his, uh, in his ministry. So, uh, but, he's, but he says, God is my witness. Why is that important? You know, why do you call God to bear witness? We'll talk about that, okay? It's not just an empty language. It's not just a, ooh, well, I swear to God, okay? It's, not, it's, it's real. He is calling to the witness stand the, the impeachable, unimpeachable veracity God of the universe to testify to his soul the innermost part of his being. Who else looks upon the heart but God, right? I just gave it away. Okay, I'll, we'll deal with that when we get to verse 8. So, uh, understand, um, really, verse 7 begins with a cathos. And where it says, for it is only right for me, um, really it should be just as, or in the same way, cathos, in the same way, in the same way, it is right for me to think this way about you all. And the in the same way, um, I think we need to pay more attention to. And, and it's, it's sad to me how it's overlooked uh, because it, it links this extended continuation of the Thanksgiving prayer and it forms that bridge across to the intercession prayer. He's going to have a, a prayer for them that continues in verse 9. 
Uh, he says, this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. So he's got a prayer for them looking forward, but it's connected to his Thanksgiving prayer looking back, right? And this, this bridge, this bridge that connects the Thanksgiving prayer looking back with the intercession prayer looking forward is this passage here about his thinking and his feelings. Okay, verse 7 and verse 8 form that bridge between the thanksgiving prayer and the intercessory prayer. And that bridge uses bridging language like just as. It uses the, the, the kathos conjunction of, of kathos. So uh, 2531 if you want to search for that. So in the same way as, just as, even as, it is right for me to, to think this way about you all. And and I, I put it back to verse 3, although legitimately you could connect it to the persuasion in verse 6 where he says, I am persuaded of this very thing. And it may be that that is what he was thinking about when he said, and just as, just as I was persuaded in verse 6, in the same way I am, it is right for me to think this way about you all. All right? Grammatically, uh, that is acceptable. You can, you can take that cathos and connect it to the persuasion of verse 6. I just think it's better to uh, link that cathos to the thanksgiving in, uh, in verse 3. I, I don't know that I've encountered a, 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 a grammar that addressed this, but it's possible that we could even link it to the participation in verse 5 where it says, in view of your fellowship participation in the gospel from the first day until now, that too could be an acceptable antecedent looking back and linking that with the just as. That uh, the the Philippians uh, fellowship and the participation in the gospel, that too was righteous. That too was just. And in the same way that that was righteous and just, Paul's saying now that his thinking for them was righteous and just. that's probably the least likely of, of these three different opportun- uh, three different potential uh, understandings. I, I think the, the simplest one is to take it back to verse 3. And I said that on Sunday. All right. So point B then, among our greatest temporal blessings in Christ are righteous thinking, righteous judgment, and sound judgment. I, I, I view those all interchangeably. Uh, synonymous expressions. Among our greatest temporal blessings, think about it. God blesses us not only with eternal life, not only to be saved and to spend eternity with Him, but right now, starting now, to have thinking transformed. To have righteous thinking. So not only does He justify us and He declares us to be righteous, then He starts to shape our thinking so that our thinking is in conformity to that righteousness. What a treasure. Our outer man perishes, but the inner man is renewed day by day. What a privilege. And you talk about uh, the, the, the things that are, that are unique in our stewardship compared to Old Testament stewardships. They could learn the Word of God. But were they transformed? Were they new beings in Christ? They weren't new, a new creation in Christ. See, So they could learn the Word of God, they could grow, but they weren't being transformed into the image of Christ Himself. Because they were saved looking forward to a future promise. We're saved looking back to the reality that Jesus did accomplish our redemption. He is seated at the Father's right hand. We have these realities today. So we have the blessings of of righteous thinking, righteous judgment, sound judgment. And on Sunday we looked at all those passages. uh, Philippians 1-7, John 7-24, and Romans 12-3. This is the first of ten phreneo usages in Philippians, and we looked at those. These phreneo usages, the verb is phreneo, and the verb is to think. The frame is the mind. We want to use our mind. We have to love the Lord our God with all our cardia, all our frame, all our mind, heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? And, uh, and so uh, if, we're not, if our thinking is not transformed appropriately, then everything else is going to be maladjusted. Everything else is going to be off, off kilter, see? And particularly if we kind of shut the mind down, just turn off the intellect, and... Uh, and, and throw everything over on the emotional side of things. Okay? And there's plenty of that out there, trust me. 
21st century American Christianity or churchianity is, is thrives in the touchy-feelies. It thrives in the emotions, okay? And, and, and I find that um, distressing, okay? Because, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we should have these emotions, but they need to be shaped by the Word of God in our thinking. And then, uh, and then they become beautiful things. So uh, all those thinking applications from 1.7 to 2.2 to 2.5, have this attitude in yourselves, have this thinking in yourselves, which, is also, which was also in Christ Jesus. And that's the humility when he emptied himself in the kenosis passage of Philippians 2. And uh, more and more of that we'll see chapter by chapter. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, that's all of them. Okay? We don't have a chapter in Philippians that, uh, that uh, the Lord is not uh, addressing how we think. This is a book on thinking. And so we can uh, appreciate that there. All right. And then it says, Paul holds the Philippians in his heart. He holds the Philippians in his heart. And this is our cardia vocabulary. We're very familiar with it. We've studied it many, many times over the years. But K-A-R-D-I-A. Cardia, 2588 is the strongest concordance number. It's got over 200 uses in the New Testament, 256 uses. The thing you want to remember about cardia, even though it gives us all of our medical terminology, it gives us all of our English terms for cardiac arrest or cardiology or cardio this and cardio that, okay? And every cardio word you ever heard that centers on the heart comes from this Greek word, okay? And I'm glad that you, we have that as a concept, but we've got to get rid of it, okay? Because the New Testament does not use cardia to reference the, the blood-pumping organ in your chest cavity, okay? Uh, we all have blood-pumping organs in our chest cavity, but that's irrelevant to the New Testament study on cardia. And the cardia, if you, uh, you can think of it as your core, the core of your being. And remember, the real you is not your body. The real you is your soul spirit. And so the core of that soul spirit is your heart. And this is the, the new heart that we have in Christ. Nothing else happened, nothing happened to, the, to the, um, you know, that blood pumping organ in, in your chest cavity. Nothing happened to that when you got saved. But a new heart was created. And uh, the blessings there that uh, continues to be washed, the Word of God will continually cleanse it, will continually wash it. Um, you know, if all we had was an Old Testament with Jeremiah, we'd be pretty, pretty gloomy about the heart because the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Okay? But even in the Old Testament, even there, David wrote Psalms that said, Create in me a clean heart, O Lord. Okay? Renew a steadfast spirit within me. David understood this issue as well. By the way, the Hebrew lev or levav um, matches the Greek vocabulary as well. It's not the heart of man from the Hebrew Old Testament is his innermost being, his core. It is not uh, the, the blood pumping organ in the chest cavity. So, as a matter of fact, um, the, 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 the physical heart, the, the blood pumping organ, would be treated like the liver or the spleen or the kidneys or any of the other uh, uh, entrails, okay? Um, which for the animal ritual, they were always removed from the animal and, and separated and sometimes cooked and eaten and sometimes disposed of. Um, but all of those, those are terms that represent emotions. Whereas cardia is a term that's used to represent our, uh, our uh, worship, our love, our, our intellect. So we'll, we'll have more to say on that as well. So um, Paul holds the Philippians in his heart. What does that mean? As fellow fellowship participators in grace. Okay? And it's a bit redundant and slightly repetitive to duplicate the expression here. But that's what happens when you put, stick a soon in front of koinonos. Soon koinonos is the term. 4791. And it's a compound from koinonos. It's a compound from fellowship. Um, koinoneo and, and uh, the terms we looked at already from verse 5. But it, it prefixes a soon in front of it. And so that that uh, intensifies it, but it stresses the togetherness. Soon is together. Okay? And that's what Paul was worshiping, or thankful for, was that these believers were together with him in the grace uh, attitude. They were together with him in grace. So, this is uh, explained here. Alright, so 
Uh, it is only right for me to think this way about you all because I have placed you in my core, in my innermost being, the inner man, right? The innermost part of who I am. And uh, it's not an emotional thing, it's a spiritual thing. It's, a, it's, it's really, it's a thinking process. He chooses to do this. Placing the Word of God in your heart, placing fellow believers in your heart, ministry experiences, uh, things that you take to heart. Why do you take it to heart? Placing these things within the core of our being is an act of humility and it's an act of blessing. And this is what we're going to talk about. How do you put something in your heart? How do you treasure something in your heart? Okay? Well, I recommend we learn the how-to pretty quickly if you haven't learned it by now because thy word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. So I think we're doing it already, but maybe we're not thinking about the process. We're not thinking about how we do it. And it is a humility process. It's with humility that you receive the word implanted that's able to save your soul. All right. And so how do I put the word of God in my heart? I want to take it to heart. How do I put a person in my heart? Okay, Not an emotional love thing. We're talking about a, a spiritual car, a heart cardia application. Love will come later, but the, the, uh, the, the, the thinking has to start first, being shaped by the Word of God. Uh, so, Psalm 119.11. We're familiar with these. Psalm 119.11. In the base strophe, Starting with, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Right away we recognize that the word of God is, is greater than simple information. It's greater than gnosis, it's greater than knowledge, all the facts in the world. If this is about the word of God that transforms our thinking, that shapes who we are. The word of God that should saturate us, whereby we can then walk in purity. We can walk in holiness before the Lord. So how can I keep it uh, pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Is that emotional or mental? Is that thinking or feeling? All right. Well, it's thinking. All of this is thinking. The only, the only uh, reason why it's even a question is because uh, of our modern English usage and, and idioms and all the different things. Okay. Um, with all my core, with the, the center of who I am, I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden or treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. And so there's a benefit. Treasuring or hiding or storing or implanting the word of God in your, in your lavav, in your heart or in your cardia, in your innermost being, has the, the benefit then of delivering you from sin, of delivering you from the, uh, the snares and the temptations and, and, and those things, that I might not sin against you. Because it's at the core of who you are, see. And so is it the first thing you think of or is it the fifth thing you think of? Well, what's the core of, of who you are? Okay? Are you largely uh, this, that, and the other thing and then occasionally you dabble in some doctrine? Well then at the core of who you are you're going to find that's going to get expressed when sin temptations come along or other things come along. But if the Word of God shapes you at the core of who you are then that's the first thing that comes to your mind. Not the last thing that comes to your mind. Alright. And I think also too uh, we recognize the process the how gets answered in the same context here as well in the Baith Strophe. In, in terms of, well, how do I treasure it in my heart? How do I plant it in there? Do I plant it in there? Does God plant it in there? How does it happen? Is it something I do? Is it something that God does? Both? How do I get it in there? Okay? And let me tell you, it requires repetition. It requires consistency. It requires abiding. The, the Word of God will never abide in you if you don't abide in the Word of God. Okay? Because it goes both ways. The meno verb is reciprocal. It goes both ways. Yes, we live in the Word of God. And that's the only way for the Word of God to live in us. It can't just be a passing thing. And so uh, we have it. And, and you know, the unbeliever may get this. Secular science may get this. There's all kinds of studies out there about how to learn. You know, how to, how to improve your memory, for example. 
keep meaning to yeah, I know I keep meaning to read those books, right? True story. I got a book on my shelf. True story. How to boost your memory. And how to boost your memory. I think I did read it. I, I really do. I just don't remember. That's right. Um, I, I should probably read it again if I've never read it or read it for the first time. But I, I enjoy telling the story. Um, so there's studies. How do you memorize? How do you learn? How do you engrave? How do you make a part of your long-term memory? It's not just cramming the night before the test and memorizing a list of 1,135 words, but it's drilling those 1,135 words again and again and again and again and again and again consistently. It's memorizing the Word of God consistently. It's reading it consistently. See, I'm trying to it's a method I'm trying to use now with, uh, with uh, uh, Philippians. I'm trying to do it now with Hebrews. I'm trying to do it now with, with these studies. And so um, I'm reading the, the prison epistles every month. All right? Every month on a schedule. And uh, reading uh, Hebrews every month on a schedule. See, Jeremiah every month. So it took, us, it took us a year to go through Jeremiah. I read Jeremiah 12 times in that year. Reading it once a month. Okay? Just re- same thing with Isaiah. And just trying to read it over and over and over again so that you can place the Word in your heart. Ultimately, you're asking God to place it in the heart. You're clearing away the soil, clearing away the rocks, clearing away the thorns, clearing away the, uh, the, the hard-packed dirt on the road, and you're, you're providing for that depth of soil. Then you're letting God implant that in there. Come into Bible class saying, Lord, play, uh, place that and place it deep. Okay, I want to learn tonight. Humble me to receive it. And it goes on, um, verse 12, Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. So if I'm going to treasure the word, that means I let him teach me. And then with my lips I have told of all the ordinances of your mouth. You want to really learn something? Teach it. Teach it. Ralph Braun was so devious when he assigned me. My third year of Greek was teaching George Dykeman his first year of Greek. And, and, and man, I learned more teaching George his Greek, then I learned myself. And I realized, wow, I, I was supposed to know this already. And I didn't learn it until he was asking these questions. I'm going, ooh, that's a good question. I don't know. And then I'd have to look it up and i have to find out. And, and you will learn by teaching. And so the psalmist here says, uh, with my lips I have told all the ordinances of your mouth. You will really know your doctrine when you're teaching it to others. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. You know that you're treasuring the Word of God when it's a priority over money, when it's a priority over career, when it's a priority over all these other earthly things. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Everything else is second. I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. So this, again, I think follow, follow up to the study is the meditation praying over it, thinking over it, relating it to experience, considering its application in different situational uh, testings. And I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. So we have the reality of it and we've got the, um, the I think, the, the methodology. I think we have much of the how is spelled out in, uh, in these verses as well. So we're going to place the word of God in our innermost being, at the core of who we are. But we can also place fellow believers in the core of who we are. And uh, there's a benefit to that. I, I, I tell you, I make no secret of the fact Ralph Braun is at the core of who I am. Right? Because he trained me. And, and set that example and, and, and uh, introduced me to Sharon and, <laughs> and you know, officiated at our wedding and so much more. Okay? And, and, and I wouldn't be who I am today without Ralph. That's clear. And so how is it that a person becomes at the core of who you are? Well, we're going to see some of that in the sense of uh, Paul and the Philippians, but I think there's other examples of it as well throughout the New Testament. Believers, ministry experiences. Look at Luke 166. Luke 1 and Luke 2. We're not even in the church age yet. The psalmist in Psalm 119 was an Old Testament believer and uh, Luke uh, chapter 1 and 2 is still Old Testament, dispensation of Israel. 
And, uh, and, and there's other examples here too. Um, I don't know. It's interesting to me. It says in Luke 166, all who heard them kept them in mind. That is, stored in their heart, in their cardia. Saying, what then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. And so um, they, they see this whole experience here where Zechariah being struck deaf, or being struck dumb. He, uh, his voice was taken away from him because he doubted the Lord. And uh, all of these things uh, were, were a source of great wonder and great excitement. And that idiom, all who heard them kept them in mind. That is, took them to heart. So here we have a, a ministry experience. Here we have an event taking place. You know, you have uh, a, a treasurer that calls you on the phone and says, Pastor, are you sitting down? You know? Uh, no, I can't if I need to. What's going on? You know, and he says, well, we got a check in the mail. You better sit down. <laughs> okay. And so there's an experience. There's a ministry event. See? Or um, other things. You know, uh, Shirley Newton's granddaughter is at the bottom of a swimming pool. Um, don't know for how long. Don't know if she's going to live. Don't know if there's brain damage. Don't know. Don't know anything. All we know is where they found her, how they pulled her out, and now they're on the way to the hospital. Okay, this is years ago, decades. Okay, long time ago. And um, in fact, I wasn't even pastor yet. Ralph was still the pastor. Okay, but Ralph was out of town, and so I get the call. Okay, and uh, you have you have um, ministry experiences that that uh, you never forget, right? As you go through, as you see the grace of God, as 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 these things happen, as you watch miracles unfold and God's hand at work, and and that goes to your heart, that goes to your core, and it, it is a part of of what makes you who you are. All right, and so with these guys, it's, it's these guys. All right, chapter 2. Um, a couple of places, verse 19 and verse 51. And um, Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. And, uh, you know, <laughs> it's rough enough having a baby. And, and then uh, a bunch of shepherds barge in. Um, <laughs> you know, um, anyway, we're familiar with this, right? The Christmas story. And, and so uh, G, uh, Mary and Joseph have gone to Bethlehem and no room in the inn and they're in the manger and they're having the baby. Meanwhile, angels go to the shepherds and the shepherds are going to come and check this out. And so uh, here's these shepherds, these men that are trained to, uh, to identify the sacrificial lamb. These are the Bethlehem shepherds. Okay, The Bethlehem flocks are the flocks that are used for Passover. And these guys, these are the guys that are the ones that select the appropriate lambs. If there's spots, if there's blemish, if they're spotless or blemish, and they're, if they're acceptable for Passover or not. These are the experts. And so the God the Father says, all right, I want you guys to go testify now to the real lamb without spot or blemish. And so he sends angels to talk to these guys and they go to see if it's so. And uh, today in the city of David there's been born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And uh, so the son of David is now on this earth. And you're going to know this. How? Because you're going to go into town and you're going to find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. There's something you don't see every day. <laughs> okay? And, uh, you know, these guys are shepherds. They, they know their way around a manger. They understand what, what this is, the care of animals. And, and so then there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts. Glory to God in the highest where the song comes from. And, uh, and so when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the uh, shepherds began saying to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. Notice, they're not saying let's go see if it's really true. They're convinced it is true. They're just going to go see it. They're going to go watch. They don't doubt, that it, of its, they don't doubt its reality. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. So they don't hit town and start 
checking out the inns. They don't go looking at the taverns. They don't go looking at the, you know, they go straight to the manger. They don't know where to go. And there she is, and there's the baby. And so now they've got the opportunity to testify to Mary. They make known the statement which had been told them about the Christ. They get to uh, teach what they've learned. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured these things, pondering them in her heart. And uh, I think that's a consideration also. It's not just wondering about it, not just thinking about it, but actually taking it to heart. Actually implanting it into the core of who you are. And that's what Mary was doing. So the shepherds then went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen just as had been told them. All right, And then same chapter but down to the end of the chapter, 12 years later Jesus is uh, going into the temple and uh, they're there, they're leaving, they don't see him but they just assume he's among the relatives and acquaintances. Um, you know, he's, he's a good boy, he doesn't run off, he never disobeys, you know, he's a perfect kid. And so they just assume he's there. And then they find that he's not. And then they got to go back. And by now it's the third day. So after three days they found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And, and um, so much he can teach out of this. But his question to them is interesting. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Joseph doesn't say a word, not sure why. Or if he does, Luke doesn't write it down. That's probably better. Joseph probably said a few things that Luke couldn't write down. <laughs> Maybe. All right. You know, stuff that you don't say on the radio. I don't know. But her words are recorded here. But then his statement. To me, this is this is this is this is uh, one of the more important passages you can ever pay attention to to understand hypostatic union, to understand uh, uh, kenosis. Um, he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? He has a question. And, and then he says, Did you not know? that I had to be in my father's house. And he's asking this question because he did not know. Did you not know? He did not know that they did not know. Right? Follow that? So he did not know, meaning he wasn't using his omniscience because God the Son knows everything. But Jesus Christ in his first advent incarnation had laid aside his privileges. We're going to study this in the kenosis of Philippians 2. That he, he sovereignly set apart his divine omni-attributes and sovereignly chose to never exercise any of them, not one time. Okay? Not one time. Not until the resurrection. Okay? So, did you not know? And they didn't. And he didn't know that they didn't until now. Now he knows that they didn't. So, um, did you not know I had to be in my father's house? He's right. He has to be in his father's house. But he's incorrect as to the timing, it's not at the age of 12. Okay? Does that bother you? He's incorrect. I didn't say he was sinning. It's <laughs> not a sin to be wrong. It's not a sin to be misinformed or to have an assumption remedied with more accurate information. Okay? It's actually a mark of humility. And so um, it says in verse 50, they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And so... Verse 51, he went down with them and came to Nazareth, continuing in subjection with them. Okay? And because they were not on board, he, uh, he chose to, to submit to them. And, and I think that's a marvelous pattern for all of us. Okay? That, uh, you know, if, uh, uh, if, if a husband and wife aren't in agreement on something, if a pastor and deacons aren't in agreement on something, if, if, uh, if one person thinks, hey, this is the greatest thing in the world and he's ready to jump on board but the other one's not ready yet or thinks it's not the time or really just doesn't know, well, what do you do? You don't just yell at him and say, well, you dummy, I'm the son of God, I know what I'm doing. Okay? He's the 12-year-old. And he recognizes these are the parents, the adopted parents, the, the foster parents, if you will, that uh, are shepherding the, the humanity of Christ. And I'm glad they did a good job. I wouldn't want them to sin at the age of 10 and, and not be eligible to go to the cross. Okay? 
Anyway, sometimes folks aren't comfortable thinking in these terms. That Jesus could be factually incorrect. That he could be a finite understanding. And uh, well, that's how his humanity grew. That's how he identified with us. So, he continued this objection to them and his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with man. Okay? Doesn't say the reaction that Joseph had. I think Joseph dies shortly thereafter. He may have actually been terminal on this event. Maybe why he was so quiet, we don't know. But we never see Joseph again anywhere in the, in the Gospels after this chapter. And uh, by the time Jesus is, is uh, appearing to be baptized, he's nowhere around. Jesus has responsibility for his brothers and his sisters and his mother and, uh, and all of that. So, uh, placing ministry experiences within the core of our being. That takes humility. That takes humility to observe something and then absorb it and say, okay, Lord, what, is this, uh, what does this mean? What do I do with this? Uh, I don't like it, but uh, some, some of those experiences are painful. But if it shapes us and suits us so that we have a ministry down the road, we're able to serve others because we've been shaped by this here, then uh, thank God for it. All right, that's chapter 2. How about Colossians 3.16? Colossians 3.16. Colossians will be next after Philippians, by the way. Before Ephesians. Um, Colossians 3.16. Verse 12 says, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on, and this is, uh, this is our vocabulary here that we'll get into in the next verse in Philippians because the heart of compassion is not the cardia, it's the splanchnon of compassion. The emotional heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, a lot of those are fruit of the spirit vocabulary terms that come in here. Okay, and You put it on like a garment. Bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And so in terms of our heart, in terms of the core of our being, uh, it starts here with this humility. Without humility, you'll never have it. Why would you put somebody else in your heart if you're not humble? The arrogant person just has them in the heart. Okay, Me, myself, and I. (laughs) Looking out for number one. And at the heart of who they are is them and, and no one else. There's no room for anyone but them. Okay? All right. That's a movie quote too, isn't it? From Hunt for Red October. All right, never mind. And now it says in verse uh, 15, let the peace of Christ um, rule in your hearts. So it's got to do some work when it's there. To which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. And let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Is it in your core? Is it at the center of who you are? Is it richly dwelling there? Or are the stones and the thorny grounds and the other hindrances to your soil keeping the word of God from bearing fruit? Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts, there's your cardia, to God. And so uh, again, these are fellow believers, ministry experiences, the Word of God, all of the above, richly dwelling in our heart. And I find it to be a, a remarkable thing, an act of humility and an act of blessing. Being able to regard the other is more important than yourself. Finally, James one twenty one. Uh, verse 19 says, This you know, my beloved brethren, that everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility... Receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. So here's the how-to with humility. Pride will hinder it. 
Pride is like the thorny ground. It's going to hinder the Word of God from taking root. In humility, receive the Word implanted. Passive, right? Receive it. God's doing it. God's doing it. We're the vine. He's the vine dresser. Let God do it. Let Him put that Word in there. The Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. Let it pierce. Say, so, well, it hurts. I don't want it to pierce that deep. Can we have something more shallow? <laughs> Can we get a little bit more? I don't like it piercing so deep. Okay? No, it's a scalpel. And part of the medical terminology of Hebrews is that um, maybe it's not a sword. Maybe it's a two-edged scalpel. Okay? And if Dr. Luke is the author of, he- of Hebrews, then I think scalpel is probably a better translation than sword. But now I'm going to overturn all the traditional sharper than any two-edged sword translations of uh, Hebrews 4.12. But that's what it's got to do. It's got to pierce that deep. And so it's with humility, which, is, uh, which and notice, receive the word implanted, which is able. Okay? It doesn't automatically. You've got to submit to it. You've got to let it work. You've got to let that word do what it's designed to do. It is able to save your souls. Just like uh, the, the, the wilderness generation received the word of God, but it didn't profit them. Why? Because they didn't unite it with faith. Okay? Just because it's able to do something doesn't mean we let it do something. The Word of God is able to save our souls, but what if we quench the Spirit, grieve the Spirit, throw the Word of God out the window, take matters into our own hands? <laughs> well, the Bible says this, well, I don't care, I'm going to do that. Okay? Well, then, the Word of God is able to save your soul, but you're not using it. You're not using the Word of God. You're not letting it shape you. You're not employing it in your thinking process or in your words or in your deeds. All right. It's a humility. It's an act of humility. And it is indeed a true blessing. Now, because of Paul's righteous thinking, through that righteous thinking, he developed an affectionate longing for the Philippian saints. An affectionate longing for the Philippian saints. Because of Paul's righteous thinking, he developed an affectionate longing for the Philippian saints. And so we're going to learn about affection. What is the affection of Christ? What is, I mean, we know what affection is, right? But to be affectionate, why, how, on what basis, with whom? There are believers that it's, I could say, difficult, but honestly, impossible. Okay, well, why is that? Why is that? Are we commanded to be affectionate with everybody? We're commanded to agapao everybody. But what about affection? Okay. Who becomes the object of our affection? When, where, and why? On what basis? Okay. And, and this, if we get this right, we're going to solve all of the, the phony baloney stuff that's out there. The, uh, the churches that are confusing affection with love. Okay. The crowd that's accepting abomination and calling it love. And they wanna and 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 they're wanting to embrace sin because they're confusing affection with agape. Alright? We gotta get this right. And we gotta see the order from verse seven to verse eight. We gotta see how the thinking shapes the emotions. And I use cars as my illustration. What's in the driver's seat? What's in the passenger seat? Okay? And what's in the back seat? <laughs> All right. What do you keep in the trunk? And other things. But you never, ever, ever, ever want to put emotions in the driver's seat. Okay? Ever. Keep your thinking there. Emotions can call shotgun. <laughs> All right. If you'd like. If uh, on occasion they need to be in the front seat, just not driving. All right. Thank you, Father, for tonight. Thank you for your truth. Father, uh, open up our minds to these passages. We've seen several of them, Father, and there's more. Maybe uh, folks will find more that I didn't think to put in there, but um, I pray that not only would we read these verses, but that, Father, you 
would uh, show us what it means to be able to take this truth and put it at the center of our being. So Father, help us to live this out. Let it shape who we are. It is able to save our souls. We're already eternally saved, but here's an experiential salvation. Here is saving from the the snares of sin and the defilements of the flesh. And uh, the Word of God will save us. It's the best lifeguard out there, but we've got to use it. We've got to receive it. We've got to humble ourselves under it. So Father, uh, open our eyes to these realities. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Alrighty, thanks for coming tonight. Keep your armor on. We'll